You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmoreccc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Uh, I, I want to, as we as we kind of walk through this again, you know, I've kind of done it out of order because we started the first of it and then we looked at the second half um, of it at the same time so that we could kind of get a grasp of what he was talking about. But we're going to circle back into the middle of Colossians, looking at particularly verses um, uh, 11 through 15 this morning. But in order to do that, I wanted to make sure that we're all on the same track with the overview uh, that we're taking when we look at this. And so you, you'll have some of that outline in your notes and they'll be on the overhead and we'll talk about it uh, a little bit more. Uh, just need to say my wife isn't here because she's packing up the car because we are married for 29 years today. And so we get to go celebrate a little bit this weekend. And, um, and so as I was reflecting on it, I just had no idea whenever I knelt for us to take communion on the stage at Christ Community Church when I was 20 years old, how much you all would be part of the story that God was weaving into my life. And I, we are just so grateful that we here and we've been able to serve here for 20 something years. Uh, most of our marriage life, you all, this community has been a part of who we are. And so uh, I just want to take a second and say thank you all to the way you've contributed to helping us get to this 29-year mark because there were moments when we weren't sure we would make it to this mark, and so, but we have. Um, so uh, w- whenever we look at Colossians, one of the things that's important for me to do, and, and, and if you start kind of thinking about in, in these ideas, uh, you'll, you'll see this thing really, really, I think honed in on in some of the letters, particularly in the prison letters. You can see it here in Colossians and in Ephesians and in Philippians. You see it very, very uh, uh, overtly in in the book of Galatians, all of these that we think Paul probably wrote. But then this theme is very, very uh, intimately articulated in the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the man or woman was that wrote that book, but that theme is most certainly uh, clearly present. And, and it's this theme that I want you to be mindful of. I just think that we do not talk enough about the way that the biblical literature has to be understood in the context of the covenants. I mean, do you, the word testament, does anybody in class today know what the word testament means? It just means covenant. It, it literally, they are synonymous terms. So when you look at your Bible and you see it divided between the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, what is being communicated and the way those writings are organized is the writings of the Old Covenant and the writings of the New Covenant. This theme is throughout the Scripture. All, In fact, when you read the story of Israel, their hope is anchored in the prophetic promises of the new covenant that God is promising to bring. But what I want to mention is I understand that I'm a bit of a one-string banjo when it comes to this. It's like the thing that I see all over the scripture. But I think that when we become one-string banjos, we start to get a little hint about what maybe our calling might be uh, as, as a gift that God has given us to serve. And I know that I'm that way, but I, it's critical to me that we understand 
those contexts, this idea has been so transformational for me that I want to share it with others. And we see the contrast begin in Genesis chapter 3. That is where we see, whether you want to take that as literal two people or you want to read that as the metaphorical beginning of humanity, all of those things are honestly secondary to me than the truth that's being spoken through this story. And what we see there is there's an invitation either to intimacy or ideology. It's right there in Genesis chapter 3. God shows up in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve for as he had been doing for who knows how long because there aren't strict timelines in those stories. We have no idea how long the physical or I mean literal or metaphorical distances between Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3 but what we do see is we see a habit and the habit is that God shows up in the garden to walk and talk with his creation and what has happened and, and he has already made them in his image and he's breathed into their nostrils his spirit which made them living souls this is what we're told in Genesis 1 2 and 3 and then they become convinced that God is holding out on them they're they are convinced that they are not like God but they could be they're not like God now but they could be if they went and nourished themselves from this sea or this, from, from this tree or from this system called the knowledge of good and evil, where you begin to divide and conquer and you label things good and things bad, then you've got good guys and bad guys and us and them. And all of human society is based on being nourished from that tree. That's the place from whence all of our ideologies flow, whether they be religious or non-religious. And there's that invitation, walk with me. And they go in the other direction. And then you see whenever um, Israel has been delivered from their captivity in Egypt. And what they do is they come out of bondage from this system and they're brought into the desert to worship the Lord. And as, you, as we look at the history of that of that um, founding of the Israelites. We see all of their documents, we read them and so forth, and, 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 and we make them religious documents. So things like the Ten Commandments. But one of the things that may be helpful is to understand in the context, the Ten Commandments are more like their constitution. They're not like the foundation of all religious practices. I'm not saying that they don't speak to our morality. I'm not saying, therefore, we should murder and steal. That's not what I mean. But I'm just saying that we've, we read those as religious documents, when in reality, these are the founding constitutional documents of this new nation. And, there's, and they were intended to be a nation that was utterly unique in all of the world. I mean, I, again, I'm not talking politics here. I'm just saying go back into Deuteronomies and Leviticus. The way their nation was intended to be set up, there would have never been billionaires and there would have never been the, um, the destitute poor because all debt was to be turned around every 50 years and gone back to the originals. I mean, th th their approach to communal living and even wealth distribution is something utterly unique. They never lived it which is part of the reason why they come under judgment and deportation and the destruction of the temple. They never actually followed through on all of the points of that covenant, but that was the intention and that was the, that, that was the way in which God's heart was being expressed to those people. And he says, you're going to be like all, you're going to be, he's, and he says this in, in, in I think, oh, I better not quote because I'll get it wrong, but you can use the Google. Um, 
He says, I own the whole earth, but if you'll keep my covenant, you're gonna be my special people. And then you go over to 1 Samuel. And there is the conflict in 1 Samuel that is a reimagining, in my opinion, of the conflict in Genesis chapter 3. Because here is the offer. I will be your king. You'll be my special people. I will be your king. And guess what Israel says? No, thank you. No, thank you. We want to be like all the other nations of the earth. We want a king to rule us and we want a king to fight for us. We want our life to be mediated through that institutional representation. That's what the human heart does and that's exactly what they do. Even though Samuel comes back and says, look, if you get what you wish, you know what's you're gonna be oppressed with taxation and he's gonna take your sons and daughters and have them for his armies and for his court. And nevertheless, they say, no, we want a king. You guys remember this story? And then Samuel's all upset. And you know, the prophets, I mean, they, they were most definitely the most uh, 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 mentally unhealthy of the religious figures in the Old Testament. I mean, they're angry, pouting, temper tantrum all the time. Samuel's this way, he's depressed. And you remember what God says to him? Samuel, dude. Don't take it personal. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being their king. But again, do you see this opportunity that's there? Either be the people who walk with God as their king or opt to a system, systematic approach where there's authority figures and structures and obligations, and that is what our heart goes to. And I, my burden is that what so-called modern-day Christians do the exact same thing. They come in with this theology where they celebrate grace, not deserving God's love. I could do nothing to earn it. You've just chosen me and graciously saved me. And then they're discipled into another system that tells them, okay, now for you to maintain this, you've got to believe this way and you've got to reject these beliefs because, be, because the Christians that believe those things, they're not real Christians. And here are the activities that you have to do now and you need to refrain from these activities. And we recreate these little mini systems that have this full power over our lives, but we invest them with a lot of authority. And pretty soon we are robbed of the joy of being a man or woman fully alive, birthed by the spirit of God with the presence of God dwelling in them. We go to churches and we go to places to meet with God all the while missing the fact that he has made you his home. You, God is wherever we are present. And I do think that those writings in, in Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians and in Galatians, Paul is trying to emphasize this reality against his ideological opponents, which are the Judaizers. And today you'll see why. I think that this, whatever they were struggling with was some sort of obligation to return to some sort of form of Judaism with their Christianity, like was the situation in Galatia. And you'll see that why in this part of the section. This is where it becomes very clear to me. I don't know, maybe it was a mixture between pagan and Judaism, but it seems like it's heavily relying on obligations of Judaism, and we'll read that in just a minute. But, but, but this is what they begin to do, and so this is the battle Paul is trying to fight, because that old covenant was part of the progression of humanity's understanding of God, but it was never meant to be the end game. 
In fact, back in the old covenant, God is already sending prophets to testify and, 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 and proclaim the coming of this new covenant. And look about their essential differences. In the new establishment of the new covenant, what you have is Moses acting as a mediator for the people. He goes up with the presence of God and he comes back down with tablets of stone and this is the law of God. But the law of God is written externally. So it's written externally, it's an authority above you, look to it and obey it, and here's the blessings for obeying it, look to it and disobey it, and here's the punishment or the curses for disobeying it. But it's external, and then they have an external system of priest and king and prophet mediating this reality of this old covenant, all the while they're telling people, all of the trappings of your old covenant religion don't impress Yahweh at all. The prophets show up and say, I hate your fasting days. I hate your holidays. I hate your meetings. It's just like a bunch of noise to me because you've made your religion vertical about all the ritual practices you pursue to stay connected to me or to please me, but you have no horizontal morality. And that's what this is all about. I don't care that you fast. I care whether or not you share your food with the hungry, you see? And he says now there's a day coming where this exclusive external covenant is going to be an inclusive internal covenant. And that's what the prophets say. Isaiah says it, Jeremiah says it, and it's celebrated again in the book of Hebrews, which is this. What's the characteristic, the first characteristic of the new covenant? What happens to the people of God in the new covenant? Does anyone remember? Where do the laws, the laws of God get delivered once again? But where do they get delivered? Right here. You see, the full, the the old covenant isn't bad, it isn't wrong, but it is incomplete. The New Testament is very crystal clear on that idea. In fact, we're going to read a passage today that says, in fact, all that was was a shadow. But the substance that the shadow was pointing to is Christ. And now he has come. He has established a new covenant in which God, it's an inclusive covenant. God pours the spirit out on all mankind and he writes the laws in our hearts, which is why Paul will go on in Galatians to say, the only law you need is love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Beatles reminded us many years later, it's all you need, baby. But he says that, that's all you need. And you do that by what? Keeping in step with the spirit. And do you remember what Paul says in Galatians 1 or 2 when he talks about the revelation of Christ? He doesn't talk about the time when the Spirit of God revealed Christ to him. What's the language he uses? When God revealed Christ in him. When God revealed Christ in me. This is the invitation. But my friends, just with all humanity throughout history, we experience the same threats to our faith as people of God have always experienced. So my overarching thought that really for our entire study of the book of Colossians, but particularly for this morning is this, the old covenant represents a God above you understanding of God. The new covenant reveals the God in you reality of God. Now, once again, what are you saying? God doesn't rule that there's higher... Th go, go ahead and just hold that there for just a few minutes, would you? Um, would you, are you? Are you saying that God's not above us? I'm not saying that. Again, I am not saying that religious systems and old covenant representation, that that's 
evil in and of itself, but it can go awry and it it can be made into an idol that takes us away from the heart of God. No, God above you is a true reality. He is the source of everything we see and literally his present spirit and therefore love saturates every single centimeter of the cosmos. Most certainly he is above you. However, the trick that the, the, the missing piece is that was hidden until the fullness of time is this God above you is the God that has always been in you. This is why one of my favorite quotations is beware the man whose God lives in the clouds. That God is distant and he is above and he's all about demanding and obedience. No, your God doesn't primarily exist in the clouds. Your God exists in your soul. He is the God in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So old covenant represents a God above you understanding of God. And that's true of, of the, the, the information we get from the Jewish scriptures, but that's true of other religious systems as well. Whereas the new covenant is revealing a God in you reality of God. So let's look and see how this breaks down. Here's Paul's argument as we walk through Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 23. The 8 through 23, really the overall point is don't let anyone judge you or exclude you. This is what he's saying. He says, listen, now that, remember he takes Colossians 1 to create this magnificent vision of the universal risen Christ that is nearly too difficult for our minds to even comprehend. And he presents this vision and he's saying, now th because this is who not only you belong to, but this is who holds you together and this is who, you, who lives in you, therefore you don't submit to rules and regulations where people are judging you and telling you you're excluded if you don't practice this particular outward form of spirituality or practice of a belief system. It's what he says. So in Galatians 8 through 15, his emphasis is the reason why is you're already complete in Christ. This is why that discipleship that focuses on what you are not is misguided. Discipleship should be a growth in the revelation of who you have become, who you are, or even more importantly, who Christ is in you. But so his argument is you're already complete in Christ. So therefore, in verses 8 through 10, ideological or there are ideological and religious rivals to Christ to whom you must not submit. And then he says, they're going to press on you an ideology that says that you've got to follow the law and be circumcised. This is why I think it's primarily some sort of Judaizing uh, challenge that's happening in Colossians. But what he says is, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that, but what I'm saying is it's already happened. You've already been circumcised in Christ. You have already been freed from the law's demands. And here's the big kicker for dispensational Christians in Southern Oklahoma that are waiting for the good stuff to happen when we die. You've already died and been risen with him. You have already been seated with him. Why are you standing around in buildings waiting to hear a trumpet so you can fly away and be with Christ when you've already been seated with him? This has already been Accomplished. That's what he's going to say. Are you sure, Artie? I'm glad you asked. Let's read it. Galatians. Col I did it again. Next time, I'm just going to read rain shoes, and we're going to be in Galosh Gal Galatians the rest of the time. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. 
Simply don't be taken by ideological rivals, which is what we talked about last week. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. Whew, doesn't it sound like our man-made denominational traditions? Maybe that's going too far. That's just how, that's kind of what I read into it. Uh, verse 9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is head over every ruler and authority. Now think about this, for example. All of our traditions have rooted in them some great man of God or woman of God that probably had a real sincere revelation and a response to the spirit, and then we build traditions around their teachings and so forth, right? So let's, for example, I'm not picking on anyone. It's just the one that's clearest in my mind. One of the denominational histories that I have appreciated because of its work of redemption in America is the history of the Methodist church in America. But the point is this. John Wesley was used powerfully by God. But guess what? John Wesley also had a Lord to whom he was submitted, who ruled over him. Guess who that Lord was? The risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is, yes, learn from John Wesley, be inspired by John Wesley, and I've, given, I've created you to live in a community of mutual benefit for one another, so by all means, learn from him. However, you don't submit to him. You submit to the Lord that he's submitting to. You are already filled with the Lord that he served. That's what Paul's saying. He's already the rule over every other authority. So, so, and that's the one that lives in you. Therefore, can't you see how silly it is to submit yourself to one of his subordinates when he, the king, actually lives in you? Is that, is that kind of starting to solidify here? This is what he's saying. Uh, the entire fullness of God dwelt in him, and you've been filled by him who is head over every other rule and authority. And then he goes on to say these words, and I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to get too far into all the complicated details of this forest, but you're welcome to use the Google, and or if you want to hear about the commentaries that I read each week, I, I love them. I love the background in this, but I'm trying to do something a little bit uh, more of the forest rather than the individual trees here because these ideas are pretty complex. But what he says is this, verse 11, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done by hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. So what, what he's essentially communicating is this, if there are teachers that are saying, now that you have faith in Christ, in order to really be the full participants in the people of God, you now need to seal that covenant with the sign of the old covenant, which was circumcised. That's why Paul has some very vehement things to say about those teachers of the first century that were telling other Christians that they're supposed to participate in symbols of the old covenant in, in order to fully be part of the new covenant. Galatians, I mean, he's very vehement. In fact, he actually says in Galatians something that's pretty audacious. He said, I, I wish they'd just go ahead and cut everything off. That's what he says in Galatians. I didn't say that. I didn't learn that from Mozart. That's what Paul said uh, in Galatians. That, that's, how, that's how vehement he is about this idea. And why? Why? Because, my friends, when we start looking to old covenant systems in order to compromise with new covenant realities, we put ourselves under bondages again, and that is why the church used to be irresistible, and now it's utterly resistible. 
because we've just submitted to the obligations of the old covenant and used more fancy language for it to make everyone, to trick everyone that that's not what we're doing. But that's what we did. That is a compromise. That is less than the glory that, God, that Christ gave his life for you to experience and to taste right now here on earth. So he says, you're already circumcised in Christ. Then he goes on to say, and furthermore, <laughs> you are already free from the law's demands. Colossians 2, 3, 13 through 15. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. Now, what I love about this verse is it highlights the fact that real religion that flows from the heart of God is a declaration of what God has done for us, not what we are obligated to do for God in order to be brought into a right place with him. That's not the, the religion of God. Religion of God is a glorious revelation of what he has already done for you. So, so, so <laughs> if you're dead, in order to be made alive, you don't make a decision of faith. Someone has to resuscitate you. That's what the real spiritual life is about. He, he was never putting on you the bondage of, well, believe this first and then you'll be redeemed. No, he just redeems you. He just redeems you and you begin a process as an intelligent human being to figure out ways to articulate this revelation. And sometimes the language that we use to articulate ends up tricking us and it becomes the language that we, that we elevate as our authority system. When really it's, I'm not saying we, we're gonna get rid of that language. I'm saying that it has to have its proper place. It's just to help us to articulate this miracle that has happened to us. He made you alive. Uh, so beautiful. Where, where, where are we? Um, 13, 14, thank you very much. Oh yeah, because you're already free from the laws of man. When you were, you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all our trespasses. Now, I don't want to say too much about this because God forbid that I rejoice in God's graciousness and mercy and forgiveness too much. I don't want to go overboard. And I'll be gone next week, so you can't buy me a Reuben to clarify. But all I'm doing is I'm just saying, hey, let's look at the text. Isn't it interesting how forgiveness is spoken of in the past tense? How many times in your shame has forgiveness been used as a carrot? That if you do these things, then you'll walk in that forgiveness. And yet Paul doesn't use forgiveness as a carrot, but a reality that is the foundation. You just begin there because that's the heart of God. Because I would tend to say I was forgiven for my sins when I asked Jesus into my heart at seven years old at a Pentecostal Sunday school where I was told because I listened to Prince records, I would go to hell and never see my mom and dad again. I chose heaven. And unfortunately, I burnt the Prince album. Yeah, I could have done so well on eBay. Uh, that's when Jesus forgave my sins. Well, except for, oh, I did say, I think I watched a movie, had some naughty words in it. And then I said some naughty words. So God forgave my sin after I said the naughty word and said, God, I'm sorry I said the naughty word. That's how I would have articulated it. But the real answer is, when did God forgive you of your sins? It happened centuries before I was born. 
when Jesus paid it all on the cross and as verification for the authority of that forgiveness, he then conquered death and the grave. Love won. And when love won, I was forgiven. And so were you. That's what Paul says. He doesn't dangle it, dangle it as a carrot. He says it happened in the past when he forgave all, when he forgave your sins. And so we're, that was 13. He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. And then, he, then he goes on to really drive home the point. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that, um, that was against us and opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. So anything that speaks against you as a word of shame has, all, has no basis of authority because the authority that would have been uh, uh, given to that accusation would have been the certificate of debt, but that was taken away because he nailed it to the cross. That's what Paul says. So he uh, nailed it to the cross. Look at this, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now, let's take just a moment. Oh, and then, and then he goes on in Colossians 2.17. This is the foundation of his polemic against these ideological rivals. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. So essentially, look at what Paul's argument is here. He says, don't by ta be taken kept captive by human tradition and philosophies. Why? Because the fullness of God already fills you. The God in you is over and above any ideological or religious system that can take you ca captive. But there's another reason why you shouldn't be taken taken captive because in your baptism you were already circumcised in him you were already buried with him and you were already raised from the dead with him and you were made alive in him and those authorities that speak authoritatively their words that, uh, that they derive their authority from the systems they represent and they speak down upon those who are subjected to those systems. Guess what? He actually disgraced them publicly. He disgraced the rulers and authorities as they... What's ironic about this, which we don't have time to get into, is that what Paul's doing here is he's saying this, look, he was actually disgracing them when they thought he was dis they were disgracing Christ. Because that's what the whole procession of crucifixion was about, to disgrace the one who was going to be crucified. That is also why the indignity of being put up on the cross and being literally stripped naked, bare in front of everyone, all this is about a process of judgment and shame and disgrace. And what Paul is saying is that moment where you all thought the authorities won and publicly shamed and disgraced Christ was actually the victorious moment in which God in Christ was publicly shaming the authorities. That, that's, that, that's the celebration, the irony, the beautiful prophetic irony of what was taking place. He triumphed over the rulers and authorities in him. God will always be bigger than any system that tries to explain him. 
That's all that I want us to see. Are you saying you're not gonna claim Christianity as your tradition? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not just a rehearsed version of an ex-evangelical that got mad and read a little Nietzsche in first year of college and now I'm leaving the faith. However, I did have to find a faith that wasn't worth leaving. And the former one was worth leaving. I don't agree. I mean, I don't grieve when I see ex-evangelicals leaving a God who has been truncated to the image of angry men. I say, go for it. Congratulations, you're on your way to finding the God who has always undergirded you all of this time. Now, again, I'm not saying that those systems don't have any... They're evil, yet that's not what I'm saying, but I, ha, but I am saying it's crystal clear from reading the New Testament that one of the primary warnings is to never let your expression of religion become the source of your inspiration. It is all about where it's flowing from, from within. And so all of the systems, any system that tries to explain him will never fully get him because he's always bigger than that. And this is the challenge, isn't it? This is the irony of growth. Because the moment I get a revelation of God, I'm, I am called to enjoy that, to celebrate it, to maybe have a worshipful response. But what I cannot do is isolate it and then put that upon other people as if this is the revelation of God that was intended for humanity. The moment you begin to define your understanding of God, you begin to lose your understanding of God. That's the delicate, ridiculous balance, isn't it? As soon as I affirm something about God, I have to quickly remind myself, but that is not all that can be said about God. This is why I think it was, I don't know if it was Evelyn Underhill or Meister Urquhart that said, God, deliver me of God. And what he meant by that was, don't ever allow me to rest in my finite articulations of who you are. Help me always be in awe of the God that exists beyond my ability to understand and articulate. And I think there's a lot of great wisdom in that. It's liberating. So, the old covenant represents a God above you understanding of God. And the new covenant reveals the God in you reality of God. The greatest threat to the liberty of the gospel is the deception of blending the old and new covenant approach. Therefore, Paul is adamant in his letters that the new covenant made the old covenant obsolete. Jesus doesn't improve on the old covenant. He fulfills it and replaces the old covenant with himself. Now, I think the implications, if you toil around with this idea, are phenomenal and breathtaking. I think this Understanding is part of what God is going to use to make the church once again irresistible in our generation. But we are given the same choice that other generations are given. Will you submit to a conformity of a system or do you want to walk in the inner transformation of Christ in you, the hope of glory? And to learn to cast your searching from God instead of out there to right here where he was the moment you took your first breath. 
That's the question before you as an individual. It's the question before us as a community. And it's the question that's before us as this current generation of Christians. Will we learn from the past? Or will we repeat the same idolatries of the past? This is the question. So then this comes down to a very practical question because I can feel it. I've heard it in a dozen emails and a few mean texts. So what does that mean for concepts like obedience? I mean, it sounds like on the one hand, you're saying we're free from demands and yet every Sunday morning, I come here and you share another demand with me. What gives, Artie? Well, you always have to entertain the possibility that I'm in the flesh and I'm wrong and I'm part of your community as a, as a spokesperson, not as an authority. And so maybe you need to really take me to have a Reuben to say, I, th- I think you, you missed it here, Artie. And I am more than willing to have those conversations because I think that that's true. Sanctification is a community effort after all. But maybe though, we just need to explore it a little bit deeper. And here's what I would suggest you consider. In religion, condemns, condemns. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. Somebody trademark that, because I think that we can coin that based on what I'm about to say. <laughs> In religion, commands condemn. So they condemn. Very clever. In religion, commands condemn. In Christ, commands reveal. And this is the essential paradigm shift that we have to make in our understanding of obedience and ethical standards. They are not our taskmasters. They are our servants. They are our guides. In religion, commands condemn, but in Christ, commands reveal. In other words, commands do not condemn us for who we are. The commands reveal who we are and how we are wired to live so that we flourish in God's kingdom. See, I feel like a command like love my enemies, I feel like it condemns me because it's showing me something that I'm not. I don't love my enemies very well, well, so I don't like to read these commands, love your enemies, because now I feel condemned because I can't do the thing that I think God expects me to do. But what I hadn't considered is that command is telling me exactly how, what I should do in order to flourish because there is a Christ in me. And guess what? The Christ in me, his nature is to love his enemies. So really my nature is to love my enemies. The deception I'm in is I'm believing a religious system that says, just based on your behavior, this is not who you are. Therefore, you need to work harder to obey so that you can become that. And we ebb and flow on our success in that. But really, it's to say an inward journey to say, Holy Spirit, up here in this part of my head, my conscious brain, I can't comprehend loving my enemy. However, I fully believe that Christ in me who loves his enemies is my life. He dwells in me as the hope of glory and I'm ready to go into this new season of, of maturity and growth by learning how to live according to that nature. You see, that's a difference between pretending that I want to love my enemies while believing that I'm an enemy hater. 
What I'm saying the revelation of faith is until you understand that God has already made you an enemy lover, regardless of how you feel or the behavior you're currently pursuing, then it's going to be an empty endeavor because all it is, is just another pile of advice on the self-improvement category of your shelf. But it's not self-improvement, it's self-revelation. You're wired to be gentle and to be forgiving and to be loving and to be joyful and to be full of peace and self-control and to serve others in the spirit of that joy. That's not who you're striving to become, it's who you are. The chaos in your life is in not living in accordance to the new nature that you've been given. That's the chaos. And all we need to do is make a decision to stop doing that. (laughs) and to start cooperating in a rhythm of life that allows me to be aware of the presence of God both within and around so I'm already on the spot ready to obey as the Spirit leads so I can, in Paul's word, keep in step with the Spirit. If what Paul has been communicating is true of the state of the new humanity under the new covenant, what is the authority that guides our ethics and behavior? Fair question. Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Well, that's a little scary to me. It sounds Bible, but it's still scary to me. How how do I know how to be informed that I'm making the right decision? Good question. Oh, I wrote it in here. How can we grow in discerning the leading of the Spirit? Simply ask, what does love require of me? You've got guidance of commands in a book that come up to over 600 commands, but then you have it distilled into a much simpler approach. What does love require of me? You know, one of the things that Christians love to write about and talk about on podcasts and write books about is discerning the will of God. We've made it like the Mount Everest for super Christians. All that means, look, God is love. Discerning the will of God comes down to the very simple question. Ask in cooperation with the Holy Spirit and vulnerability to his leading, what does love require of me here? Let the Spirit speak and then keep in step with him. Look at what he says in Galatians 5.13. We're moving our way up Galatians, by the way. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Look at this, verse 14. Now think about how heretical this would have sounded to a first century Jew. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. So maybe a secondary question of guidance is this. Am I making a vertical morality decision 
or horizontal morality decision because it's always been about the horizontal. There may have been language of the vertical, but in the end, our faith and obedience to God isn't intended to terminate this way, but this way. And Paul finally lets the cat out of the bag and says, it's always been the point, my friends. Look, it's so easy to live a small life of vertical morality because it's easy to convince yourself that you're very pleasing to God because you're just rehearsing your own private morality system. This is why God says, well, that's not real. It's not real until you get up from the prayer closet and you go do justice. I'm not saying ignore the prayer closet. It's part of my rhythm of being aware of God's grace and the call to serve. But I realize the happy feelings I feel in that private place of prayer, that's not the ultimate goal. It's the joy I experience in connecting and serving other people. The entire point of the first half of that Bible that you read is simply this, go love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what Paul says. That's where it gets manifest. And then finally in Galatians 5, verse 6, he says this. The the Bible's so powerful, isn't it? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. Now again, as the worship team comes on up, again, can you imagine how offensive this would have been for the first century Jew? He's saying, your little... Rituals that define you as an ethnicity and a religious people, they matter for nothing. What matters? Would you all stand? What matters? Stand with me, and then as I read it, please repeat after me. What matters is faith working through so simple so much better than getting a book on the music you're supposed to listen to. And, you know, if you like Twisted Sister, consider, um, what was the yellow and black band? Striper. And, (laughs) you know, you can do the Charleston, but be careful that your hips don't swing too much and you're too sensual. I mean, all these crazy things that, all that matters, my friends, so you're living a faith, a life where your faith is working itself out in love. Are you recognizing that what matters most of all is that you live a life of loving your neighbor as yourself? And guess what? So that this isn't too hard for you, I've just resurrected you with my son and brought you into heaven and filled you with the universal spirit of love who is the risen Christ who dwells in your heart and I've made that your nature so I'll make it a lot easier for you. Thank you.